Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we come to worship you and study your word this morning, we do pray for the people of Ukraine. And we pray, Lord, that your hand would be on people that are suffering as, as they are losing literally everything, including their lives. And we know that there's Ukrainian Christians, and we know that there are Ukrainian pastors. We just pray, Lord, for your hand of protection to be over them. We pray, Lord, that people would come to a saving knowledge of you in all of this turmoil and strife. And Lord, while we know that as we live on this earth that there will always be wars and rumors of wars, we look forward to the second coming when we will live with you in eternal peace where there won't be weapons, there won't be violence, that we will sit under your reign victoriously. I pray, Lord, as we go into Bible study in our time together this morning in your truth, that you would just speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. In my last sermon, I gave a brief summary of where we have been in our continual study of Romans. And in addition, not only did I do that last week, but I gave an intro and an overview of how we would approach Romans 9 through 11. And last Sunday, I made the statement that was based on a sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones had preached on the meaning of Romans 9 through 11 and how you can approach it And Martin Lloyd-Jones had made a comment that I will paraphrase, that you could approach the main point of Romans 9 through 11 through Israel's rejection of Christ, and and you're going to see that. You could approach it from the idea and the doctrine of predestination. You'll see that as well. It's a wonderful group of chapters to point out the doctrine of predestination. And thirdly, Martin Lloyd-Jones believes that the main point of Romans 9 through 11 is to defend the theodicy of God. That is, justifying who God is, the action of God as it relates to the interaction with mankind as we live in an evil world. And if you think about that, and if you bring in what we've studied so far in Romans, we've seen where Paul lays out this idea that all mankind is evil, both Jew and Gentile, that we all are evil, and that the only way that we can have mercy in front of a holy and righteous God is to stand before God with the blood covering of Jesus Christ. 
And that blood covering of Jesus Christ gives us mercy and it gives us grace. It gives us completeness. And God chooses who will receive that grace and mercy. And that basically summarizes Romans 1 through 8. And as Paul progresses, as I made mentioned last Sunday, as he progresses to Romans 9, he is anticipating this question from his audience. What about the Jews? After all, they were God's chosen people and they ended up rejecting God. So what about the Jews? And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones believes that 9 through 11 is to defend the righteousness of God as he operates in a world in which he is sovereign and he chooses. But this idea about what about the Jews is an appropriate question. After all, the Jews had the word of God in a way that the rest of mankind did not have. They had special revelation. They saw the awesome power of God. If you think back just to the Exodus and witnessing the mighty power of God as he pulled his people out of Egypt and gave them his law. And in spite of seeing all of that, they rejected him. And Paul is going to give a detailed answer regarding the Jews that we'll see in upcoming verses. But the way he approaches 9 through 11 is a wonderful explanation of the sovereignty of God. And I'm confident that as we progress through these chapters that your faith will be strengthened in God's sovereignty. But before we kind of get into that, Paul makes a couple of comments that I think are worth focusing on in verses 1 through 3. And the reason why I think it's good to spend some time in verses 1 through 3 is that Paul makes a statement of compassion, which we'll look at in just a moment in more detail. But the reason why I think that it's important to look at Paul's statement of compassion in light of the fact that Romans 9 through 11 is used extensively to point to the sovereignty of God and God's right to predestination. I think it's so important that we look at those in balance because unfortunately... People who believe in Reformed theology, the idea that God is sovereign and God chooses, they, we, we get a bum rap. Because so many times people that believe in the total sovereignty of God are labeled as uncaring, without compassion. We could be described as calloused. You may have heard people describe them as the frozen chosen, as they make light of the fact that there is a lack of action because some people mistakenly believe that 
people that believe in Reformed theology are fatalistic. I do have to agree with this notion that some people that have embraced Reformed theology have mistakenly taken an attitude that the church doesn't have to witness because everybody's chosen who's going to be chosen. And that's, that's not scriptural. But there are some folks who have taken this idea that you don't have to worry about the loss and that God is at work so the church doesn't have to be. And if you look at what Paul says as we begin chapter 9, you can feel the compassion that he has for his countrymen. And the reason why I want to spend time on this is, is that to me, it's the great balance. As you'll see as we progress in Romans 9 through 11, that Paul absolutely believes in predestination. But he also has this unbelievable compassion for his countrymen. So with that being said, turn with me in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Romans And we will read verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 1, ending at verse 5. And Paul wrote this. He said, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And as we look at the words that Paul is writing in these particular verses, I want to say that Paul starts off with a very bold introduction. Sometimes these verses are ones that can be read very quickly, and you kind of miss the overall emphasis that Paul is trying to make here. And in this bold introduction, as we read these words of Paul, let's first look at the sincerity of Paul's words. He first states it in the positive. As you look at verse 1, he said, I tell you the truth, as he introduces us to what he's about to say. I tell you the truth. Then he says it in the negative. He says, I am not lying. You first get in the positive, I tell you the truth. Then you get it in the negative, I am not lying. And then thirdly, he states it according to his faith. Look at what he says. I tell you the truth, how? In Christ. I tell you the truth in Christ. And then look at what he says later on. 
my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. So he says it in the positive, he says it in the negative, and he says it based upon his faith. In other words, as chapter 9 opens up, he's trying to get his reader's attention before he makes a declaration. In the modern vernacular, he may say, listen up, everybody pay attention. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to pique his reader's interest. Why? As you'll see in verse 2, he has a continual burden. A continual burden. Not a one-time burden, but a continual burden. Look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. In other words, it's a burden that's not going away. It's always there. It's always in the back of his mind. So here we have the greatest missionary in the world, writing the church at Rome, and he says, I have this burden in my heart. Now keep it in context. He just spent Romans 1 through 8 laying out why we need salvation, how we get salvation, how we're kept for salvation. And then as he pivots to chapter 9, he says... I have a continual grief. Well, what's the burden about? Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. That's a bold statement. For my brethren. My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God in the promises. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on 4 and 5 this next week. But what I want to spend time on this morning, because I think it's appropriate as we are about to embark on three chapters of predestination, three chapters of God choosing, I think it's appropriate to spend time with this phrase that Paul wrote regarding his countrymen. I have great sorrow and continual grief. This isn't some statement of bless their heart in the Southern tradition. And for our international audience that listens to our sermons... In the South, we have this phrase, bless their heart, which usually is used when we really don't mean it. When you want to couch something negative about someone as you're about to embark on gossip, you say, bless their heart, right? It makes it all right. Bless their heart. Paul's not saying Bless their heart. He says, in my faith, as he opens up nine, in my faith, I have grief and continual sorrow for my countrymen. In fact, 
He's overcome with it. He's going to later on go through and give the answer to why Jews rejected. But what he's saying is, is that he's so overcome with grief and sorrow, he would rather be lost if his countrymen could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is a compassion that you do not see in our society very much. A compassion for the lost. We could take this idea of, well, God picks everybody. I don't have to worry about it. And it is what it is. And so I'm going to go to church and I'm going to have this holy huddle and I'm going to look inward and I'm not going to worry about my neighbors or my family or my friends who don't know the Lord because after all if they're really supposed to be a believer that God's going to pick them and so I could have this callous view Paul definitely didn't do that he said I'm overcome I'm overcome with grief But I would argue that the attitude that Paul has isn't from Paul. It's just not an attitude that he has on his own. I would argue that Paul's attitude mirrors the attitude of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, as we are witnessing the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And in verse 41, it says, Now as he, referring to Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come, Upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what I want to point out here is that Jesus Christ accurately prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen several decades later. That was the truth. And the truth came to pass. It's a clear historical event. In fact, several years ago, I was in Rome and I was standing at the Colosseum. And you can look up and you can see a tribute to the destruction of Jerusalem as it's carved into a fresco, as they are depicting the procession of Roman soldiers and Jewish slaves. Jesus said this before it happened. It's the truth. It happened. But look at verse 41. As he looked out over Jerusalem, as he knew the truth, what did he do? He wept. He wept. He's about to face the cross. The entire city is about to reject him. Yet Christ moved with compassion, looked upon all of those who would later on 
mock him and scourge him. And he wept. He had compassion on the loss. This isn't just an idea of Paul. This is an attitude that is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But let's give Paul's actions context. Because here he said, I'm in continual grief. In my paraphrase, but he said, I would rather be an apostate if my countrymen could know Jesus Christ. Well, how about the relationship that Paul had with his countrymen? How's that? Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And as Paul wrote this to the church of Corinth, he documented what his countrymen had done to him. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. From the Jews, very important. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers. And then look, in perils of my own countrymen. His relationship with the Jews after accepting the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't a good relationship. They wanted to kill him. And despite all of this, he would have compassion on his countrymen. Well, how do we do that? Because that's not natural, is it? As we look at Jesus Christ, as we look at the Apostle Paul, as we see them in Scripture have a compassion for a people that do not deserve compassion, how do you have that? I think the answer can be found in Paul's own words in 1 Timothy 1 as he wrote Timothy. And you look at verse 12 in 1 Timothy 1, it says... And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which were in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In other words, Paul always understood who he was, who Jesus is, and what he became Not out of merit, not out of works, but he became the person of God because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You can't have that type of compassion unless you remember that we are not here by works of righteousness. We are not here by merit. 
We're here only by the grace of God. Does God choose? Absolutely God chooses. But he doesn't choose us because we're great people. He chooses us because we accomplish his purpose. He chooses us and transforms us. And just because we're chosen, it does not mean that we live in this world as people of coldness. The church should be about compassion. Compassion for the lost. Do they deserve it? No. Did I deserve compassion and grace and mercy? No. Did you deserve compassion, grace, or mercy? No. If you come to church, if you practice your faith with the incorrect view that you are here, and this is so very important to me because this is the attack that we have from people who don't believe in Reformed theology. Reformed theology people are frozen, uncaring, without compassion. That's the attack. In my view, that's just the opposite. And the reason why it's just the opposite is, is because I'm not here on merit. You're not here on merit. We've just received the gift of God. Our faith is a gift. That's what the Bible says. And because I recognize that without Christ, I am doomed to hell, I can be compassionate. Because I don't deserve my salvation. Because I don't deserve my salvation, I can be compassionate to somebody else. If you believe that you are here on merit, and I've been in plenty of churches that say that they believe in the grace of God, but there's that little bit of merit, right? That little bit of merit that, well, aren't I good? I chose. I chose. Aren't I good? I come to church. Aren't I good? I read the Bible. Aren't I good? I pray. If you believe in merit, I don't care if it's an ounce of merit. I don't care if it is a gallon of merit. If you believe in merit, compassion is a victim. If you believe in merit, compassion is a victim. But if you believe in grace, if you believe in grace, if you recognize, just as Paul says, in my former life, I was an insolent man, but praise God, he saved me. If that is your belief, your faith is alive. Your compassion is genuine. Just as Paul's was genuine at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. And you can have this idea that God, yes, is sovereign and He predestined us, but you do not stop being compassionate for those people who do not know Christ. And that's what we're to be about. We're to be about that as individuals in our own life. As we leave this sanctuary on Sundays and we go back out into the world to do battle, may God see that we're a compassionate people to people that don't know the Lord. We're to be that way collectively as we come together and as we embark on ministries here in the church to where we're welcoming to people that come in, that attend, that don't know the Lord, that on the hope that they'd become Christians.
as we go out into our neighborhood, into our city, into our state, into our nation, into our world, that we are compassionate people, realizing that no one deserves mercy. No one deserves grace. But praise God we have it. Praise God that we received it. And let's be a witness to the world that it is available for people who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we come to you today thanking you that we received a grace that we don't deserve, that we received forgiveness in spite of ourselves. I just pray, Lord, that we would always be a people of compassion. I pray that we'd be motivated by compassion, that we'd be known by compassion. I pray, Lord, that we would reflect you in our own lives. I pray that you'd give us the strength to be compassionate when it's difficult to be compassionate. I pray, Lord, for this church that we might be a compassionate congregation. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone listening today that does not know you, that they would encounter the ultimate compassion that one can receive through the gift of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.